Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Podcast. I'm Jordan Holzer, proudly part of the Believe Podcast Network. In each episode, we'll be covering 90s, 2000s, film, TV, and pop culture. I am not alone. Each episode, I'll be having on special guests to help me relive my childhood. Thank you to Weedis for the intro music. This week, we are joined by the director of Blank Check, Rupert Wainwright. Last week, Jake came on the podcast and we broke it all down. This week, we got the director on the pod. We discuss how we got into the business, how we started off directing rap videos, including the iconic Straight Outta Compton video for NWA, and ultimately, what kind of led him into directing the masterpiece that is Blank Check. Yes, I said masterpiece. I also wanted to give a quick plug to Annie Wilkinson and Bryce McLay, the hosts of the Nobody's podcast, who were very gracious to have me on last week on their show. If you aren't sick of my voice just yet, please give their podcast a listen. I think it's a great, great show. We're taking a break next week. I hope everyone has an awesome and, and more importantly, safe Thanksgiving. And when we come back, perhaps a little paper brigade? Matilda? Who knows? Let's get right into my interview with director Rupert Wainwright, but not before we run the trailer for Blank Check. You know you haven't had enough of it. From Walt Disney Pictures, this morning, Preston Waters got something. What about my bike? Get that check to your dad. He'll know what to do with it. That's going to change his life. Bring check. Yeah! Now, he's buying more stuff. You have a house. Meeting more women. Baby brother comes into his own. And stopping three crooks. I'm gonna get you, kid. From taking all of his money. That must hurt. Disney's Blank Check. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspaper for showtimes. We're right. kind of coming up on the uh, 28 year anniversary of a blank check, which is which is kind of crazy. Oh, the 28th year or the 20th? I think the 28th, right? 94 it came out. God, yeah. Insane. Insane. <laughs> wow. And I believe that was your feature debut. Does it does it hold a special it was. does it hold a special place yeah. in your heart being, being it first? does, yeah. It was uh it was um it was a very it was a big switch for me because I was busy doing like uh all these rap videos at the time. So I was doing like NWA, Straight Outta Compton, and, you know, MC Hammer, who was a bit more Disney than NWA, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a big, like, you know, head turn. <laughs> but it was cool. So was I cool. want to go back, you know, to the beginning a little bit. You're, I think, I believe you're from Oxford, England. Is, is that correct? Yeah, I'm from the Oxford area, just outside, and I went to Oxford, so it's the easiest thing to say, yeah. <laughs> uh, growing up as a kid, what kind of drew you into show business? Did you kind of always know you wanted to be in the industry in some capacity? So, yeah, I um, yeah, I started doing a lot of theatre when I was uh, at school, and you know, mainly acting, but I started writing as well. And um, I had a younger brother, half-brother, who was quite a lot younger than me. And we lived way out in the countryside, like deep in the countryside. And uh, occasionally, like there was this town hall that would like once a week would like show a movie. 
And it was like, you know, 15 minutes drive. And I said to my mom, what about I take Benjamin to go and see that movie? It's because movie, they play a movie in Chipping Norton. I'm like, yeah, they do once a week. You know, I said, they said, she said, what is that? He goes, something about the empire or something. I don't know. Let's go and see it. So I took Benjamin and we went to go and see the Empire Strikes Back. Like probably it was a 16 millimeter projector, I have no idea. In like literally the church town hall. Oh my god. I remember watching it, I'm going, oh, movies can do this. You know, it was like mind-blowing. Yeah. And um, so I was directing theater, acting in theater, and I was like, wow, it'd be great to like, but it just seemed impossible. You know, it was joke that like at that time. In England, saying like I'd like to be a film director was a bit like saying I'd like to be a British astronaut. Yeah. Not impossible. I mean, there have been some, but not a lot. Anyway, it wasn't clearly there were a lot of, you know, tons of great British directors, but it didn't seem a very tangible thing. Like a young kid growing up today, like directing a music video or directing a TV episode or a movie seems like reachable. Yeah. You know what I mean? But you know, there were much, there were many less films made in those days. Anyway, so I um, I went to Oxford, but I'd already been a professional uh, actor and, in fact, dancer by mm. then. And I had an agent in, in London. As a matter of fact, my first winter term, my first fall term, I spent half my time in London and half my time at Oxford. And my time in London, I was preparing for this pantomime. Pantomimes are these big British like very cheesy Christmas shows, you know, yeah. where you always have like some TV star playing Cinderella, <laughs> some like off-color comic playing buttons. And, you know, and then you in the background, you have these anonymous dancers who come in and, you know, anyway. Um, so it's a, like a big thing in England, you know. Um, and so I was like the third dancer from the left in that. And um, anyway, and then my agent called me up because there was a, a play on in England it was kind of a big play. And it was called Another Country. And Another Country doesn't have a lot of relevance for people in America. I think it's hard to sort of um, do it. But it does cause an enormous amount of glee amongst my children who can basically say to me that, Dad, according to Netflix, you're in a gay and lesbian drama. <laughs> so um, basically, it's a play about uh, upper class kids in private schools um, you know, in like 16, 17, 18 kind of era when they're sort of experimenting with homosexuality, but also with like Marxism and stuff like that. And in fact, there were several um, British spies who came out of very um, advantageous backgrounds um, in the sort of 20s and 30s and remained Soviet spies all the way through the Second World War. Oh, wow. You may have heard of some of them, like McLean and Burgess and Kim Philby. And anyway, so that play was kind of like, uh, how did that happen? Kind of thing. Anyway, it was set in a, in a boarding school. And they decided to make a movie about it. And uh, I was just in England the other day with my kids, actually. And as we drove around a corner, we're going back to the hotel, I said, that corner there, see that corner? And they're like, it's just a corner. I said, I stood on that corner for two hours in a line to go into that theater there and audition for that movie. Wow. And it was a classic cattle call. It was like if you were, you know, under 25 or something good and could speak and not fall over, you were in that audition because they were auditioning for the movie and they were replacing the West End um, play and they were doing a touring version of the play. 
So they were looking for like, you know, and there's like 20 kids in the play. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, so long story short, they did that and they managed to get in it. And um, it was kind of a big deal in England at the time. Do you know what I mean? Because it was a British play, all about a British movie, a British play. Yeah. The star of it was a guy called Rupert Everett, who was, you know, a pretty big star at the time. And um, and then this unknown guy called Colin Firth. You know, who figured, you know, he was... Never did anything again. <laughs> and I just fell off the, the radar. Um, and I guess I was probably like fifth lead or something like that. I mean, it was those two. Oh, Carrie Elvis. Oh, wow. Went on to do Princess Bride. Yeah. So those were the three, like, you know, the three leads. I was not particularly important in the film, apart from to have the sheer good luck of sharing a study with the two leads. Wow. So I sort of like ended up being a fly in the wall yeah. on a lot of important scenes. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that was kind of interesting because it was like six weeks filming, doing scenes, doing scenes where you're, you're leading in the scenes, you know, long dolly shots. Like you really were like, wow, this is how they make films, huh? You know, and it was pretty cool, you know? And it was like, it just seemed to me that the people behind the camera were like a lot more interesting kind of like, because for me, I was playing, frankly, an upper-class twit. And it wasn't as rich as what, you know, Colin or what Rupert were doing. It wasn't as rich because it wasn't a leading role. Yeah. Anyway, and then I was very lucky. I did two more acting roles while I was still at Oxford. So by the time I graduated Oxford, not only had I directed a lot of plays on the stage, but I'd acted in three movies. And so then I was like, I know exactly what I want to do. I want to be, you know, behind the scenes there. And to me, there was only one place to do that. That was America. So long story short, I did go to film school for one year in Bristol, which was amazing. And then I came to UCLA and studied film here for a couple of years. And then after about a year of wandering around Westwood Village and writing on the back of drinks coasters, I will direct a music video for you for free. <laughs> I'm, putting it, I'm putting it on the keyboard of every single cover band that ever came oh through gosh. any bar in Westwood. Um, no one ever took me up on that. <laughs> Never, ever, ever took me up on a free music video. So how did you get connected with all the with all these rappers? Were you interested in rap music as a kid? Like how did that uh, you know, how did that happen? I will tell you. This is a story that you should never, ever, ever tell your children because it gives the idea that just like fortune just falls like a golden egg out of the sky. So I'll tell you as quickly as I can. Very simply, I did one music video with a buddy of mine and uh, it was okay. You know, it wasn't horrible. We did a good job and um, we were smart enough, or not smart enough, we were completely lucky enough to cast as the love interest or the, the sexy guy in the, the thing was this guy who had a girlfriend who was in a band, which we didn't know. Anyway, so we cast him and then his girlfriend saw the thing and she liked it. So we did one video for her and then her manager saw it and liked it. And so I'd done four videos, all of them basically white disco divas. And I was like, not the kind of music I was listening to, not the kind of, you know, it was just, and I, by the fourth one, I'm like, I am really bad at this. I should not do this. It's like almost wrong to me to take them from anybody to do this because I'm so horrible at it. And anyway, they were all super low budget. I mean, not by today's low budget, yeah. you know, like 18 grand, you know, 19 grand, 20 grand, something like that. But you remember to shoot on film and develop the film and all that, you know, old fashioned stuff. 
And my friend who I've met at Oxford, is an American guy, found, we, we were counting pennies so badly. He found a place out in San Diego where we got ridiculously cheap rates to do the post-production, to do all the edit, you know, the online editing and coloring and everything. And my girlfriend lived in, in, um, in San Diego and he had, a, he had a boyfriend at Camp Pendleton or something. So whatever, we just did it on Saturday mornings, got even cheaper rates. So we'd done four and we always used to do all the post-production in this little place, not even in San Diego, like north of there, way inland. I, I wish I could remember the place, I seriously would. I could not buy everybody lunch, I swear. <laughs> anyway, so cut to about a year later, I've turned my back on doing music videos. Not exactly like anybody's knocking on the door. So yeah. it wasn't like a, a big, I've retired. You know? <laughs> it was like, oh. and, uh, and And I get a call one day and um, the, the, I was working in, in a place. And they said, Rupert, you're coffee. I said, who is it? And you go, uh, who is it? Uh, MC Hammer from Capitol <laughs> Records. So I'm like, Capitol Records, I've heard of that. So I, hello, he says, hi, my name is MC Hammer. I've just signed a deal with Capitol Records. I'm looking to make a music video. I'm like, sounds great. I said, why are you calling? Why is it not Capitol Records? He goes, well, here's the deal. I signed a deal. I want to release one single. They want to release a different one. And I'm insisting on releasing this single. So they said, you have to pay for your own video. I said, all right, fair enough. I said, where did you come across my name? And he goes, because he's obviously from Oakland, right? He says, well, I did a video, like me dancing in a club, and I edited it in this little place down in San Diego. And while I was editing it, the guy who's, I don't know if you know even what the tape op room is, right? But it's the control room where all the one-inch tapes and the Bs and all that stuff used to get, like, you know, the brains yeah. of it all. And a guy, the guy who runs it, who's frankly like a technician, but like sort of low on the totem pole. He's got to be good because he's got to yeah. you know, run all the stuff. He's not like doing the coloring or the mixing or whatever. He called me in and put your work on. And I guess they must have collected the four different videos that I'd done there on one piece just so they had it. And he gave me your number. I wish I could find that. <laughs> I swear to God, because Hammer was incredibly loyal. We did one video, and I never thought I'd hear from him again, right? And, um, you know, he wired me 50% of the money before I met him, turned up, paid the rest in cash. You know, we went long, paid a little bit extra cash to get it done, and was very focused. Like, he looked at cuts and go, that's good, but don't do this, please do that. No, not like, ah, I hate it all, or, you know, it's great, or look at me, you know, just really focused. Like, this guy knows what he's doing. Called me again six months later to do another one, and I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. And we did another one with Too Short, the rapper yeah. from Oakland as well. We did the two combined together. So we did another video from then. And then it just took off. And, um, you know, uh he was incredibly loyal. Every time there were obviously there were people in his world who were like, well, what about you know hiring a black director to do some of these videos? He was like, you know, I'm a black artist, I choose who I want to work with. Yeah. And he's the guy I want to work with, you know. And he was incredibly loyal for years. We worked together. And um different he had different acts that he, you know, he brought in. And anyway, so one of those videos was a video for which was a huge video. 
It was a tie-in for the Adams Family movie. So the idea was we did a music video with his song, but him dancing with all those guys on the sets of the actual movie with the actors from the movie interacting with him. So we had to rebuild the sets. And then we found out we rebuilt them exactly as they had done them. And they were like, oh, they're too small. Because <laughs> they're built yeah. for like four or five people. And we've got like eight people just dancing on the table. So we had to like expand them all. It was wild. And so we did that. And that ran as a, as a theater, as a, like in the theaters as a, as a trailer, yeah. you know, as well as in the thing and blah, blah, blah. So one day, this is like a classic. This is like a 1950s kind of like... Uh, there I was at Moose on Franks. <laughs> so, Moose on Franks, are you where are you guys? I'm in Westwood Village. I'm right in your old stopping ground. Oh, okay, so you know Moose on yeah, Franks, yeah. right? So, for those who are listening to your, your podcast, Moose on Franks is kind of like the oldest school uh, restaurant, movie restaurant. It's where all the deals know, get made. In, in all the Hollywood deals get made at Moose on Franks. It used all to be Hollywood. Yeah. Now. But I mean, for example, you'll see it in like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know what I mean? It even goes way back before the 60s. It goes back to the 30s. It's the kind of place when you order a salad, they just bring you half of a, of a cabbage <laughs> and like a bucket of ranch, you know? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and like, you know, there's only one steak and it comes raw and, you know, the usual stuff. Anyway, so for once in a while, I was having lunch there with an English friend of mine who's in the business. We had yakking away. And um, he knew everybody and I didn't. And he was waving at somebody across all the way across the, uh, the way. And he was a producer who, uh, he was actually a, an executive at Hollywood Pictures called Danny Halstead. Danny would, had been an agent, went into being an executive and was like very, Danny knew everybody, super friendly, super schmoozy. And he came over and he said, are you Robert Wainwright? I said, yeah. And he goes, you did the video, Adam's Family, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I need a VHS copy of that like this afternoon. I'm going to send a message to your office and pick it up because uh, Katzenberg's kids go nuts for it and they need a copy for the kids. I'm like, all right, we can arrange that. This is Jeffrey Katzenberg. This is Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Katzenberg ran, yeah. you know, a movie studio, not a telephone company. <laughs> Anyways. Or Quibi. Um, or nothing. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, and, and so we did. And then a week later, I got sent this script. And they basically said, you know, it's, it's yours. And I was, uh, the honest truth is this, you know, I was desperately trying to do a movie at TriStar, which was this very dark, twisted film about someone who had died in a underwater car crash and had been brought back, but was still having flashbacks. You know, every kind of movie that a first time director wants to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then there was this really cute movie about a kid who gets a million dollars. <laughs> It seemed desperately uncool to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, all my, like, you know, all my, you know, straight out of Compton guys are going to be like, what? <laughs> and um, I, I, so I went to the meeting very unsure about what to do. And um, don't take this out of context, but I had a line that I was sure would turn them off so I wouldn't have to do the movie. And they go, what do you like about the movie? I said, what I like about the movie most is it's kind of like child pornography. <laughs> And I said, what? This is like in the mouse house. You know what I mean? And I said, well, not pornography with children in it. Yeah. Pornography for children. Like wish fulfillment with no consequence. Exactly. Yeah. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like this must be recorded somewhere. Are we all going to jail? It's like saying whatever you can to get out of jury duty. You just say whatever you can. Exactly. Yes. 
Exactly. I love when he is right. Exactly. Like, oh. Your excuse, sir. Well, <laughs> So, um, so they were like, oh, 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 oh. and the next thing you know, they say, you're going to do the movie. I'm like, yeah, I, I really, like, he grabbed me by the hand. I remember he had a broken arm, the executive. So he grabbed me on the right hand by the left. hand. said, we're making the movie, right? I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wish the rest of my life had been that easy. <laughs> anyway. And, um, and then it started. And at that time, Disney were making, they called them 10 for 10. They were making 10 million, 10 movies a year for under 10 million. And they were like sink or swim. And they figured they'd get one home run, maybe two, a couple of singles and doubles and a couple of strikeouts. But on average, that $100 million would do whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that was their plan. So it was the, this was the era when they made like Cabin Boy. <laughs> you know, uh, David Letterman's uh, uh, first and last movie. Um, and uh, so anyway, so there was a whole bunch of movies made yeah. and ours was just one of them. So I thought they were going to kind of leave us alone. I thought like, oh my God, we'll just go off and make it. And, you know, no chance. <laughs> I mean, the amount of supervision that Katzenberg did really? is mind, mind blowing. Guy has got so much energy. It was ridiculous <laughs> because as well as the 10 for 10, well, other movies they were making, right? And there was animation and everything, yeah. you know. So basically, we started casting, and he wouldn't approve anybody. And we were like, but we have to shoot in this time because this is the summer holidays. And the kid's going to be eight or nine or ten, right? And then if you go into the fall, they were like, yeah, whatever. Uh, so then they were like, um, I did screen tests with people. I did screen tests with actors playing against the kids as well. It wasn't just, you know, audition tapes, but on and on and on. Wow. And then eventually we found the guy, we found Brian, and, and Jeffrey loved him. So we were off to the races. And, um, but we were off to the races late. So about half the shoot took place in the summer holidays, and half the shoot took place during the fall term. So whilst, you know, when children are acting, they get rest time, of course. They also get school time and rest time when they're in school. Now child actors in school is a, is a little bit of a, you know, I mean, God bless them. I'm sure they learned something, but anyway, so it was a little bit of a, it was a little, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of time with, with Brian come, you know, come him going back to school. So, you know, it's hard, but I mean, everyone else is doing it too. You, you, you get used to it. Why was the movie set in Indiana when it's very clearly Texas? Why couldn't they just set the movie in Texas? Honestly, I had no idea about that stuff. There were certain things that were just a mystery to me. And I think it was set in Indiana because, I mean, one of the things, the, the one thing about the movie that even felt a little wonky at the time was it's like the most white bread family. Yeah. Like, even if you said in the 30s, they still would have stuck out. <laughs> you know what I mean? You were like, hmm, those guys are really smart. <laughs> but it felt a little, um, you know, I guess that was Indiana. I didn't. I didn't really care. Yeah. To me, it's just a question of what the license plates say. <laughs> um, I'll give you a funny example. Talking about about changing, you know, about shooting in the wrong state. Stigmata, slightly different yeah. film, was all set in Boston from the very beginning. It was set in Boston, and I was just like, of course, it's Boston because Roman Catholic yeah. working class, you know, whatever. It was Boston, right? And and so we cast it, and we went to Boston. And we scouted. 
And we were going to shoot most of it in LA because Boston was like just beginning to do the thing they called the big dig, which basically meant the whole of Boston got up, you know, whatever. But we chose, we're going to shoot there for like two weeks in Boston. We're going to shoot the beginning in Boston. We're prepping in LA and like every day we're prepping, we're like, well, we don't really need to do that in Boston. We'll do that here in LA. And I'm like, okay, fine. So like two weeks went from, you know, 10 days to nine. And then it was like, if it's a week and a half, that's a pain because you're paying through, you know, so we're like, can we get it down to five days? So it was then five days. And I'm like, hang on a second. I don't know why I hadn't really thought about this, but like, you know, working class Boston is a really thick accent. Yeah. That's me doing my Boston <laughs> right? Everybody's got to speak that way because it's like, it's not some kids from Harlem yeah. wandering yeah. around. It's like thick, low. You're from South Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, you know. So um, I'm like, do we really want that? You know, Patricia hadn't really brought that up and no one had really thought of this. And I'm like, I don't know that we want that. And they're like, well, say now, because the art department's already in Boston. I'm like, boom, talk to the producer. He goes, I don't think we do either. So we canceled Boston, got art department back. Uh, and, and of course, you have know, changed all the license plates. And then we were like, where do we set it? I'm like, I don't really care where we set it, just as, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, anyway, so I said Pittsburgh. and was like, fine, Pittsburgh, <laughs> put the new license plates in, that's all the cares. Anyway, so I didn't even remember it was set in Indiana, to be honest. But you know what? That's a great point because so many movies get the accents wrong, especially with Boston. Like, it's such a nightmare unless you're going to do it right, like the town, you know, but even like movies like The Departed right. get it wrong. It's like you really got to have somebody that's like an expert in the accent casting right. locally. It's such a tough thing to pull off. You might as well just give up. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's some that's probably Boston or like, you know, Tennessee yeah. or something is like another one where you'd really stick up. But I mean, you don't have that in Florida or California or anyway. So, yeah, so we, we shot, that wasn't really the only option. I don't sure we looked anywhere else. Um, they, they Texas, you know, Austin is like a decent sized town has a good sized crew base. Um, Clint Eastwood had just shot a movie called promised land. I don't know, something about a guy on the run with a kid or something. That's like every Clint anyway, Eastwood, like every Clint Eastwood movie. <laughs> right, right, right. I also, here's the thing about Clint Eastwood, right? I always remember where we were shooting was very much a, um, a residential neighborhood, naturally, right? You know, for the family stuff. And so they had to park the big trucks, you know, all the way down the hill. And that was where catering was and everything. So for lunch, you know, they'd have minivans and you know, run you down there. And I was talking to one of the minivan drivers. I'm like, oh, so Clint was shooting. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it must have been fun. You have to chat with him. He goes, Clint always walked all the way down the hill and all the way back up the hill for lunch. I'm like, that's how he keeps looking like Clint. Yeah, that's how you he's still working into his 90s. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, so anyway, so we, we fell in love with, I mean, we, Austin was great. And then the, the, we you know, were driving around looking for a fancy house, thinking it's just a fancy house. I'm like, stop, stop, stop. What the hell is that? <laughs> like, I don't know. What is that? And I'm like, does anybody know what that is? And they go, oh, it's just the castle. I'm like, I can tell that. But I mean, the weird thing that it is, is when you go in the castle, it, you have no idea. It's a right, It looks like a castle. It's the most ordinary house really? inside ever. Yeah, completely. So we had to completely rebuild. All of the inside is, is on a stage. 
And um, anyway, so yeah, that was the castle. Yeah, that house is so iconic. That castle, it's, it's unbelievable. So it's unbelievable for the movie. I know. Like, and as you mentioned, I, know, I don't even know. I've never seen one like no, that before. No. And as you mentioned, this is. I mean, there's that one in New York, you know, which is an armory or something that they use for a Terry Gilliam movie. But I mean, this is like right in the middle. Yeah. Like that house where he lived is literally like roll a penny and it would get down that. That's how close it was. Well, that was perfect casting of the house, I have to say. Well, you I, know, and I got hit by the lucky stick. You know, I think this movie, as you mentioned, is like the ultimate wish fulfillment movie. Like for me growing up and a lot of my contemporaries, like every kid had that dream of rolling around in the bed with the money. And I want to ask about the montages because there's so many great montages in this movie of, you know, Preston going shopping, getting the cash and and doing all that. And then also when he buys all the stuff for the house and the go-kart in the sumo wrestling in the water slide, is it fun as a director to shoot those montages? It is fun. The thing about it is, is that, you know, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I can't remember how much of that. I mean, it said he goes shopping, it goes blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, the thing about it is, is that we had Bill Pope as the cameraman. Bill um, went on to do The Matrix, but he'd just done a couple of very moody, cool movies. And he'd worked with the Coen brothers a lot. And anyway, so Bill was kind of, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Because when you're doing things like that on a tight budget, you can't like, you, you know, you go into like... Uh, whatever it's called, what's that store that has all the stuff that you don't need? Um, whatever it is. You know, one of those fancy stores that has all the, the fun stuff. You know, you can't say we're blocking this all up. We need it for four hours. I'm going to redress the whole thing. We're going to light the whole thing. Because it's like two seconds of screen time. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you literally have to throw some guy on a wheelchair and pull him backwards. you got someone else running behind him with some lights that are kind of off the, I'm hoping like, and you're shooting on film, yeah. which is not as sensitive as video and, and it's, you know, more, it's more sensitive to light than whatever. Anyway, you have to like, and you know, most people on feature films, they're like, we're doing this shot and then we're doing that shot and then the shot after that. I'm like, no, we're just going to run around the store actually. Um, and they're like, all right, <laughs> you know, so, but you know, it, it, it went pretty well. We, we were lucky. And also, you know, Austin, hadn't been overfilmed so crazy much. They were like, oh, God, here comes the film crew. They were like, how, how fun, a film crew, why not, you know? But yeah, no, that was the fun of it. I mean, one of the things about it is, is you want to have like a physical sense of exuberance in the audience. You know what I mean? So the music and the camera movement and the action and the oh, smile yeah. and the this and the whoosh and the that, it needs to just take you away. Do you know what I mean? 100%. And, and, and that way you really, you identify with that child and your body is kind of taken away. And that's what, you, what, I, wanted, what I wanted to get. I'll tell you another thing, that one of the scenes that wasn't, uh, wasn't at all in the movie, and I went to Universal City Walk while I was prepping the movie and Universal had just opened up and um, it had this fountain thing that came from the ground. Yeah. And it was warm, right? It was, I don't know, June or July or something. And I saw these kids running around in the fountain, like trying to avoid it, but being really happy when they didn't. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. and, I'm like, and it was small. It wasn't a big one. And I'm like, this is crazy perfect yeah. for the date with Shay. Because yeah. yeah. it's like, it goes with his mind being analytical. Like, I've cracked the code. I know which way to go. But then they don't. Then they're getting all wet. And that's kind of sexy, but in an innocent kind of way. Yeah. And, you know, la-di-da. 
and, and warding uh, off the bad guys, you know, an easy escape of them, them getting right, stuck exactly. in the water. Yeah. 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 Anyway. So I was like, God, I'm not going to be able to build one. I remember I called the company up and I'm like, how much does it cost to like, you know what? And they're like, you know, well, you can do one for like $5 million. That's half <laughs> the budget. So I said, where else do you have one? Do you have one? You don't know, have one in Austin, Texas. They go, no, we don't. We've got one in Dallas. Mm. I'm like, yes. Perfect. So I went to the producers and I said, listen, this is what I'm thinking. Shot some video of it. I think it would be great. And everyone's like, it's a great idea. And the writers like tweaked it and bottled a bomb and made it like the end of the, the date and everything. And, um, and so that was like, so we put that as the last two days of the shoot. And, uh, and Tone, by the end of the shoot, everyone was kind of, you know, by the end of any shoot, everyone was like, just get me off this fucking movie. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what's the most fun in the world. Yeah. You're like, anyway, so Tone was like, I'm done with doing kids movies. <laughs> so the last day, of the, so the two nights of the shoot, we're going to do the whole thing. And he has to come in and he's in a little bit at the end of the second to last night and he's in a bigger thing on the last night. So there's all these renter cops that we have there, but they're legit cops who are off duty who are paying to be our security, right? So Tone rolls up, you know, with Hawaiian shirt and, you know, and a big, uh, a blunt, you know, very obviously, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And this was 94, not, or 94, 94, yeah. 94, you know, it wasn't, there was no, you know, whatever. And so at lunchtime, you know, we were filming and the producer comes up and he goes, okay, what else have we got for Tone? Because uh, he's going home tonight. I'm like, actually, no, he's in the scenes tomorrow. And he goes, actually, no, he's not. <laughs> because the security guys just said, if he's here tomorrow, he's going to be able to shoot him out now and say goodbye to him. I'm like, copy that. Oh, my <laughs> so God. Well, I had to re-rig everything, you know, shoot the before and the after and all it was, you know. Wow. But I'd done some videos with Tone. You see, that's why I wanted to hire him. I did a video for him called Go, Got It Going On. And uh, he is so well cast. He is, he is so well cast he, in this movie. He has such an electric personality about him where it's just you can't take your eyes off of him. He is great in it. He's great in everything he does. I'm surprised that's he never really went on to have such a you know fruitful career. Because he has that charisma. You know yeah. You know why, though? You know why he makes his real money? Realist. Really? Yeah. Wow. He's a big real estate dude. Wow. And I mean, I think like, not this, I don't think it was Trump, yeah. thing, but you know, he had a, a lot of, you know, he owned apartments and this and whatever. Um, also the costume design with his shirts were amazing throughout the shoot. Oh my God. His outfits. I just want his button down shirts. Right. They were great. Right. right, right. <laughs> yeah. There was one time when he lost his cool and um, with Brian and Brian was, you know, it was like three quarters of the way through. And, you know, Brian was kind of like all child actors. They started like, hi, Miss man. And then the end, they're like, I'm a fucking star. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like natural, right? Any kid would. And Tom was like, mm. you know? and so at one point we're doing a scene in, and then I kind of turn away and I, and I just turn around and Tone has got Brian by the lapels and slammed him up against. Luckily, it was a set wall, so it, was, yeah. it wasn't solid. You know what I mean? I don't think it was there was any danger he was going to hurt him, but it was, uh, he, yeah, he turned had lost. I'm like, whoa, 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 don't break the lead actor, please. We need him for another few weeks. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was, um, it was fun. It was fun. What was it? We were, we were very lucky with the cast. We got yeah. great rich characters. Michael Lerner was amazing. Miguel 
You know, yeah. those James guys. Redhorn, just amazing. Great. James Redhorn, he's great. Jane, um, the interesting character that that I loved um, was uh, Debbie Allen, who plays the party organizer. <laughs> she was so good. Horribly over the top. <laughs> so over the top. What looks for it. And Disney hated her. Really? She was only in for like two days. Yeah. Right? She was a big star. So she flew in, she did her thing. So by the time they saw the dailies, she she was done. She had shot. Excuse me, I'm just checking my son's not. No worries. No, I'm just making sure he's coming from school. So anyway, so um, yeah, so she came in, did her thing, shot, bang. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you so much for doing our little movie. Really appreciate it. The studio calls up and goes, what the fuck is that? We're like, what are you? It's like, we're not doing like the crown here. <laughs> you know what I mean? She's like an over-the-top party planner. By the way, I've had a lot of people in real life just yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, they wanted us to dub her oh and this. God. And like, oh my God. Anyway. Is that tough as a filmmaker dealing with that kind of level of involvement from the studio executives? Is that tough, like matching what you see creatively with you know with the notes that they're giving you on a daily basis? Listen, um, yes, it is. But you know, Disney was notorious for it. You know, they called it the Mouse House or Mauschwitz. <laughs> Mauschwitz, you know? that's terrible. <laughs> they call the joke was, if you don't want to come into work on Saturday, don't come in on Sunday either. Wow. wow. Um, and they were like, you just get notes all the time, you know. I mean, I remember there's one scene when James Redhorn comes in in the middle of the party to talk to, as he thinks, Mr. McIntosh. Yeah. And has a quite emotional scene. Very emotional he's scene. Yeah. And boom, and it's a lovely scene. And we were cutting on film, of course, right? So we, you know, we do a cut, the studio sees it. Great, here's the notes. Okay, great, here's some more notes. And the notes start off broad and they get a little bit more like niggly as they yeah. go down. And then the, I remember the last one was they wanted to see three different versions of that scene. So basically, you had to edit it, send it off to the taping place, then have to tape it bring it back, re-edit it, send it off to the taping place, bring oh, it back, re-edit it, send it off to the taping place. Then you'd have three versions of it on VHS and then you could send that to the studio. And that all happened like over the Christmas holidays. You know yeah. what I mean? And they were like, they, they were middling it. And you know, the thing that did kind of bug me was that, listen, I know testing is a very inexact science you know, with movies. And they say that tech testing with kids is really hard because if kids, if kids like a movie, it's like it tests a hundred, yeah. you know what I mean? There's no like, eh, it was pretty good. It's like, it's brilliant, you know? So the movie tested pretty high to the first screening out. And they were like, yeah, yeah okay, great, well done. But we're gonna tone this down and we're gonna tone that down. So they toned a lot of things down, like the chase in the park was too, you know, too exciting and the hangling, dangling butch off the building. <laughs> yeah, that was great. You know, it was, was too much. <laughs> right, right, I love it. Yeah. But no, no, but there was like more of it. You know what I mean? And, and um, you know, uh, they like, had to cut that down. And, well, but, you know, you understand. And then, so that's the second cut. And then they're like, the bomb, line, and then like changing, changing, changing. And, you know, and it wasn't just like making it more pro Disney brand. It was also like, making it more obvious in terms of the, you know, the melodrama and stuff like that. Anyway, so... Um, There's always got to be a lesson. You know, There's always got to be a lesson in a Disney movie, right? Always got to be a lesson, right? But what was interesting is the, the third screening was going to be in Burbank, right? And it was a good sign 
that they were coming, like the first night, the first screening, the studio didn't even come. I think one guy came, you know, one of the junior yeah. executives came because they don't know. They're making so many of these movies, they don't know. Then the next screening, they're all there because they see a tested rate. Suddenly they all own it. Right? Yeah, exactly. So the third screening was going to be in Burbank and then this little thing called the LA earthquake happened. And literally bridges fell down. The place where we were mixing with it was closed down. The studio, you know, the theaters fell down. So Disney was like, never mind, we'll test in Arizona. Like, what? So I flew commercial earlier on in the day with you know the editors and they took the film cans and put it in and checked it was working fine and then katzenberg flew in and i was very luckily invited to come back on the disney jet with him so we left immediately after the screening and by then we had done all the studio notes it was like okay great done well done fantastic well done next you know he was on to the next billion things yeah. so we didn't wait for the numbers right so they're still collecting them we didn't do a focus group either so we're flying back on the jet and the jet seating is kind of like this, like banquettes facing each other rather than rows like this. So I'm sitting and he's reading the Wall Street Journal. And it's like, no one's talking to him because he's the boss, right? He's like scary. Yeah. And uh, then the phone rings and he picks it up and goes, all right, what's going on? And then, you know, he's getting the numbers. He's writing them down. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, you know, like low 70s, low mid 70s. And I'm like, all right, this is fine, don't worry. And I'm like, I mean, you, I don't want to be like a nudge here, but, you, you know, this is like every screening we've done, the numbers have gone lower. Yeah. And he's reading the Wall Street Journal. He just lowers the newspaper and he goes, you're talking to a guy who doesn't believe in the numbers. <laughs> oh, well, it's straight like reading the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> <laughs> Not creativity today. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm like, I, that's all I'm allowed to say. You know what I mean? And... Um, so, you know, it was my first movie. You're like, no, you're not, no one's sitting around going, well, say, Rupert, what are you doing? <laughs> like, he did it. He's done. Whatever. Is he still here? Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, so there was no premiere or anything like that. You know what I mean? Um, and it opened number three, and they were pretty happy with that. I think they were very happy with it, really. And then the next weekend, I think it was still just hanging in the top. The big thing was the top five. Yeah. The big 10, the top 10 wasn't really important. The, the, and it was always like, you know, page one of the LA Times on Monday. You know, are they in the top five? Yeah. We hung on by our fingernails for the second weekend. I remember I had been like working straight for like, you know, a year. And I went on a very fancy trip to Fiji with my girlfriend. And that was my reward for <laughs> The work and I, and I was staying in a place that had like very few phones or anything like that, like a you know, remote. I got to a phone and I called up the producer. And by now it was the third weekend, you know, and we were now like number eight or whatever. I'm like, well, do you think they'll do like a lot more advertising to like get it back? And he goes, it's they got nine other movies like just right behind it. It's done. Just part of the machine. <laughs> Like, okay, all right, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it must have done great on home video. I have to say, everyone that I knew had the VHS, including myself, who watched it you every night. <laughs> and, I, you know, it's strange because, you know, I always, this is not a very PG sort of thing, but, you know, every time you're on, like, a trip to New York, and for some reason or another you're in business or something, someone else is paying, 
and you're on your own, you're always hoping that, you know, you're going to sit next to like Miss Victoria's Secret or Mr. December or something like that, right? And you never do. Yeah. It's always like, you know, the head of sales from the bar <laughs> or something. <laughs> anyway, so I remember one time I was getting on a plane, I was going to New York, and uh, this very hot woman got on, but I could see she had sort of two kids. So I'm like, oh, whatever. You'll take the two, like, kids. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> the two kids, yeah. We'll I got a board game. <laughs> anyway, so one of the kids sat down next to me. I'm like, oh, here we go. But I'm like, oh, yeah. and he goes, what do you do? I'm, like, I'm a director. He goes, have I seen anything you've done? I'm like, uh, I don't know, maybe. Have you, see, have you, you seen Trey out of Compton? <laughs> <laughs> I said, have you seen Blank Check? He goes, no. He goes, mommy, he got a good blank check. And it was the yummy mommy. I'm like, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, oh my God. There we go. So that was that. So that was one era. Then, of course, I made Stigmata. And so, like, you know, I was like more talking about Stigmata a lot. And then later on, so there's like a sort of a generational curve, yes. people of your generation and, and even older. Um, you know, you would bump into them and then you'd be doing something with them and you're like, you know, wow, complicated mix or whatever. And they would like, like say like, you know, at the end of the day, just want to let you know, I just love playing Jack. <laughs> like it was like a little like sort of like guilty secret. You know I, mean? <laughs> I remember one time there was this, this British, uh, British magician who looked like Sherlock Holmes, but it was like, you know, if David Blaine was Sherlock Holmes, like super cool. And I was trying to do a show about magic all around the world and with him as like the, the star yeah. of it, but he was so popular, he had blown up. He was like fielding office. So I was like pitching him. And then we would have good meetings or whatever. And then the third meeting he goes, so I just want to let you know, you know, I've seen your movies. I'm like, is this good or is it bad? You know, <laughs> every weekend i'd pass to my mother as a kid go down to the rental store pick up a copy of it we never afford to buy it we have to rent it every weekend <laughs> oh my god thank oh my you god. <laughs> you didn't do my show so <laughs> but anyway but he loved blank check uh, no but it's interesting because i actually just like three days three four doors days ago i was talking to disney tv and um, the film is owned by Disney Studios, but we're interested in doing a reboot for like Disney Plus. Really? I think it would be like, I, I don't know if the world needs a theatrical blank check too. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but even straight but to I, Disney Plus would be great. A Disney Plus movie, I think it would be great co-viewing because yeah. there's like generations who have a kids of their own. Yeah, it. now have kids, a kids of their own. Yeah. And it's like a new version. And nowadays with like AI and deep fakes oh, yeah. and everything, you know, you can create a Mr. Macintosh who's like in the room with 100%. you. hundred like percent. A hologram. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You can't, you can't touch him because he's a German. <laughs> you can come close, but don't touch yeah. him. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, and whatever. So you can do like crazier stuff. And Oh, yeah, with CGI. You know, you know I was right. thinking like, how could you, like what's today's equivalent of a blank check? Is it like getting somebody's Venmo account? Like what's the equivalent today? Right. We've got like a crazy idea that uh, one of the things that I discovered, I just like reading like, you know, in the headlines somewhere that at least 20 billion and maybe 30 billion dollars were scammed just off California, hmm. just off COVID relief funds. Really? So just California, just COVID relief funds, at least 20, 
as maybe as much as 30. They're still debating the last 10 billion, but a minimum of $20 billion was scammed basically by like internet crooks from basically Russia or Nigeria. Wow. Like, how many computers <laughs> are there in Nigeria? Come on. Just, I mean, I know there's some, but like, are there a lot? Do all the kids in Nigeria start playing on a, you know, Hewlett Packard when they're six? Really? I mean, how are they learning all these hacking skills that they can hack the guys who happen to have Silicon Valley in their backyard? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, what? You know, anyway. Um, so anyway, so the idea is is that the kid, whatever, it's, it's, it's a, somebody's moving money around and they sort of like accidentally get, somebody's got their funds on cold storage ah. or flash drive, right? And there's a whole thing with a very, very suspect <laughs> substitute teacher who's actually underground. <laughs> like, what? Is that weird? Something like, oh, don't even talk, whatever. And there's a flash card, a bomb, and then that happens. And she's, you know, originally he's just trying to take like 20 bucks. Oh, my God. And, and you know, sometimes there's a thing that says transfer all or transfer yeah. X, you know, and you type in 20, but then you hit the wrong button. And it's like... <laughs> $300 million comes across. Yeah, what? <laughs> he doesn't know how to put it back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? He's like, oh my God, how did I do that? You know? Like, what's that anyway, number today, so, right? It was a million back in 94, but with inflation, like what number are we making it now? Wow, well, that's, you know, we'll change that. We'll yeah. decide that. Yeah. You know I'll tell you mean? what, you made my day. Tell me that there's the possibility well, of, a, of a spinoff or a sequel. That would be incredible. Yeah, so listen, it's not a set thing. You know, we've got to, we have to come up with a story yeah, that they yeah. love. You know, they don't, they don't do just anything. But, um, you know, it's definitely uh, – it's, defi- it's a definite maybe. Yeah. Well, that's – you know, it's there's so much IP but that Disney so, owns. There's so much IP. But there's so – right. But there's so much on all of the channels. Like, you don't even know where to start. And to have something that has that familiarity yeah. and, and have that sort of – genuine co-viewing experience and have like a fun upbeat sort of i always say like in a perfect world it was sort of like risky business for 12 100 percent, 100 percent. you know um like you know it's naughty but it's not that it's not evil yeah 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 um so yeah no we we hope we hope they 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 you know the gods look favorably (laughs) no i am i'm really excited you saw the success of the mighty ducks new series on disney plus that did so well capitalizing on the movie you know, I could definitely see a, a blank check sequel coming. So honestly, right. I'm super right, excited. Right, right. Rupert, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we end on, right, we end right, on five you. rapid fire questions if you're ready. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They should be pretty easy, but uh, we'll see here. Um, what are you okay. currently watching? Anything that's the top of your uh, watch list at the moment? I have been watching, you're going to hate the answer <laughs> to this. I've been watching Holocaust movies. <laughs> I'm working on a film that's about four young kids who escaped the Nazis mm. in, in World War II. So Schindler's so List, uh, Boy with the Striped Pajamas, uh, what else? Boy with the Striped Pajamas, Come and See, the Alan Klimov movie, which is like hard to watch. Yeah. There's a whole series of them. There was a movie called Walking with the Enemy that I just watched the other day, yeah. but a, a, a Jewish guy who dresses up as a Nazi officer in Hungary. Inglorious um, Bastards, a great one. Yeah. Inglorious Bastards, slightly, slightly different. different you know, yeah. Like a riff on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, you know, the pianist. Yeah. Pianist, course. great one. Yeah. Yeah. So just trying to work out what works and what doesn't. And 
what is now familiar territory and you know the whole creation of the ghetto is kind of like we've seen that quite a lot yeah. now people come kind of, kind of you can fast forward you know, there's some jumps you can make do you know what yeah, i mean people know the story and there's some yeah. other things that people are not so familiar with and finding like what's shocking what's legitimately shocking what is shocking but just still shouldn't be shown you know yeah. what i mean like all of that stuff no, that's uh that's super fascinating. You know, obviously not the most uh, uplifting subject matter, but uh, definitely it, very, it important. Is, it is, very important. Very yeah. important. It's about it's about two or three hundred kids that are uh, are saved by a Roman Catholic priest and and his network of convents and uh, you know monasteries and all the rest of it. And he keeps them moving the whole time with his his monks to keep them ahead of the Nazis. I agree. It's it it's not yeah. Not a yeah, but there were so many anyway. people that weren't Jewish that had such a big part in helping, you know, Jewish people escape. Obviously, you know, I think Jojo Rabbit did a great job of, of portraying that as well. Jojo Rabbit was great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would love to be I mean, the other movie that's really good, actually, that's set in the same town as this movie is going to be set in is uh, Agnieszka Holland's Agnieszka Holland's movie in darkness. Yeah. yeah. Which is uh, set in Lviv, which is this town in Ukraine. That's all about uh, uh, like 20 Jews who are living in the sewers for about 18 months. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, next question, uh, moving on from that one. Did you get to keep yeah. anything from the blank check set? Anything at all? Any uh, memento from the movie? You know, I have the slate. I have the slates of all of my movies, but I, I don't know that I have anything else. I did actually buy, you know, you always, you know, you always have a Google search yeah. for your own name. You know what I mean? So it pings up and normally it's something horrible. <laughs> horrible I am. But every now and again, it's like a good thing. And what had happened is someone was selling um, those black and white uh, publicity photos from the movie. And I'm like, oh my God, well, you know, back in the day, I would have had a hundred of them like stuck somewhere, you know. I don't know where they are now. So I bought them. Um, and there's pictures of me wearing those silly big gloves, boxing with <laughs> the kid and stuff That's really like that. cool. That's really so that was, that's the only thing I have, but I had to buy it off eBay. <laughs> uh, next one. Uh, if you had a million dollars as a kid, like the like blank check, what would you do with it? You know, if you put yourself back in your 12-year-old body here, what would you do? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, 12-year-old body, probably a lot of the things that Preston yeah. did. You know what I mean? I wish I could say that I would, you know, fund an orphanage in the Congo, and but probably it would be a bit more self-serving. Yeah, I think if most of ourselves were honest with us, you know, yeah. Girls, <laughs> yeah. You've directed yeah. so many music videos. I'm curious if if you could direct a music video for a more contemporary or recent artist, who would it be? I mean, I love My Chemical Romance. I believe they're broken up. Now, yeah, right? yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean they're amazing. I mean one of my favorite videos ever is their My Black Parade. That's great. Yeah, the Black Parade, which is by a director that I absolutely hate because <laughs> uh, he fucked up a video for Stigmata. <laughs> we had a Billy Corrigan song with Natalie Imbruglia singing it wow. for the end of Stigmata. That was our movie that we're gonna have the movie footage cut in yeah. with. This guy called Sam Baird directed it. And I, you know, my friend uh, Marcus uh, Nispel was wanted to do the video, and I was dying for him to do it. But Virgin was like, "No, we're going to go with Sam. Sam's going to do a great job." Anyway, he just—it was horrible. <laughs> but that one, my my Black Parade, uh, the Black Parade, is is amazing. Yeah, 
Uh, our last question was just asking about a potential sequel, but you, you answered that one. So I'm just going to ask you, what's your favorite restaurant in LA? What's your go-to spot for food? My go-to spot for food is um, the Tower Restaurant. I've never been. The Tower Bar. It's, it's where the old St. James Club is, the Tower Hotel. Um, it's like, it's quite... It's not a big restaurant, but it's it's, it's ridiculously, uh, you, you know, I mean, everywhere you look, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very tucked away. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's not very, look at me, it's all like different things, and but it's it's a good spot, and they have incredible food. Awesome. The place that I eat most at is different from the place <laughs> that is my favorite. My favorite, the place that I order most at is Tacos Neza, oh. which is right down the street. It's organic Mexican food. And it's incredible. Okay. Okay. I'll have to check it out. Anyway. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rupert. I so much appreciate it. Great talking to you. Great talking to you. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.